this week on Hope for the Broken. The final breath of Jesus was not your typical final breath. Now, Matthew's account tells us that not only the centurion, but the guards that were there also surrendered their life to Jesus, saying, surely this is the Son of God. I mean, you got to understand that, right? These were two men that were experts in the Roman art of crucifixion. How many final words had they heard? But yet Jesus' last words, they were different. Welcome to Hope for the Broken, the audio podcast ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I'm your host, Austin Mahoney. We exist to become a gospel-centered community, redeeming brokenness through hope in Jesus Christ. At Trinity, we believe we are all broken and in need of the redeeming hope found in Jesus. For more information about our church, visit us on our website at trinitytx.org. This week, we continue our series called What's in a Breath. Here's our pastor, Chris Wigley, with part three titled the breath of Jesus. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to two places this morning. I want to turn to Luke chapter 23 and then also to the gospel of John chapter 19. And so turn with me to Luke 23, hold your finger there in John 19 as we'll get to it at that point. But we're in the middle of a teaching series that we have entitled what's in a breath. And we're taking a look at the occurrences throughout Scripture where the breath of God is mentioned or is alluded to. And we're examining the power that is in the breath of God. The very first sermon, we talked about the breath of life, that God breathes life into humanity. And then last week, we took a look at the breath of God, that is the Word of God. God's Word is God-breathed, Scripture tells us. And today, we come to the breath of Jesus. And we're going to take a look at actually Jesus' last breath whenever he is being crucified in these two accounts, two of the final sayings of Jesus from the cross. You know, I read an article this past week on last words of famous people before they pass away. And you know, sometimes people's final words that they speak here on earth are uh, sad. Other times they're funny. Uh, Sometimes uh, they're serious and other times they're humorous. Uh, But here's some final words that this article mentioned. Frank Sinatra, the great singer, his last words were, I'm losing it, right? He thought that he was losing it. Winston Churchill the great motivational speaker, leader of the UK. His last words were, I'm bored with it all. I mean, who would have imagined that? John Wayne, the Duke, he turned to his wife and said this. This is his last words. He says, of course I know who you are. You're my girl. I love you. I mean, John Wayne's the man, right? I mean, even on his deathbed, I mean, he is the man, right? Humphrey Bogart's Last words were, I should have never switched from scotch to martinis. Uh, Who would have known that that would have been an important parting word? And then uh, Steve Jobs, the inventor and CEO of Apple, according to his sister in his memoir, his final words were, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Now, I don't know if that's a good oh, wow or an uh uh-oh, oh, wow, you know, but uh, these are famous last words. You know, oftentimes the last word someone speaks is the most important things you want to hold on to. And that is certainly the case with Jesus. In the scriptures, in the gospel accounts, there are seven sayings that Jesus says from the cross. 
each of them bearing tremendous uh, weight and tremendous application for our lives today. We're going to take a look at the final two statements of Jesus on the cross, his last words before being buried. And, and the chronology of the gospel accounts, these two statements, although they're the last two statements, we're going to look first at the very last statement and then come to the next to last statement as we understand the chronology of the gospel accounts. And so read along with me your copy of God's Word. We're going to begin in Luke chapter 23. We're going to read verses 44 through 47. I want to point out a couple of things and then really dive into what Jesus' statement means. So you read along in your copy of God's Word today. Verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now I want to stop here for just a second. Just like there's seven sayings from the cross, there's five miracles that occur during the crucifixion events. Luke, uh, the gospel writer here, also the author of the book of Acts, he mentions two of those miracles in these verses. The first miracle is that the sun was blotted out. And the second miracle that he mentions is that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Um, but he tells us that this, these events happened at the sixth hour. Now, in the Jewish world, the day began at sunup. So you would think around six o'clock in the morning. And so if this was the sixth hour that these events occurred, these miracles of the cross occurred, then we can assume that it's around noon. Now, the reason why that's significant is because we hear that the sun is blotted out. The light from the sun is blotted out at the pinnacle point of the day at noontime. Right, and so this is a this is a miracle of the cross. And while Jesus is being crucified, their darkness fell over the entire land. Now, Jesus's crucifixion most likely began at nine a.m., and we understand at twelve noon darkness fell, and then we know that it's about six hours that Jesus hung on the cross before he actually died at three p.m. So this is kind of the timeline here. Um, we also know that between lunchtime and darkness falling on the, the land that, uh, and, his, uh, and his death, that the curtain in the temple tore in two. Now let me just explain what this curtain is and the significance of it. In the Jewish temple, there was an inner room called the Holy of Holies. And this was said to be where God himself resided or that God came and visited and there was only one person, the high priest, that was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, and he only did so on one day a year, Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, in which he would come into the Holy of Holies and he would make sacrifice on behalf of Israel for his sin and the nation of Israel's sin. Now, legend says, church history legend tells us that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with a rope tied around his ankles, should God strike him down, that they wouldn't have to go in there illegally, but could drag him out. Now, I don't know if that's actually true, but that is said to have been legend. This was the Holy of Holies. It said where the Holy God was to reside and where he met with the high priest. Now, I'm going to come back to the significance of this, temp of this curtain being torn and two in just a moment, but this curtain separated the Holy of Holies from all the other areas of the temple. And it was said to be about as thick as a man's hand, and it was 60 feet tall. And so this, this tearing was obviously a tearing from God himself. And there's a meaning for that that I'm going to come back to in just a moment. But this is the background that Luke is describing for us for Jesus' final words. 
Then, as Jesus approached his death, verse 46 of Luke chapter 23, it says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. There it is, the last breath of Jesus. Verse 47, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Now the final word of Jesus here, his last breath, is actually a quote. It's a prayer contained in Psalm chapter 31, verse 5. And this is a prayer that little Jewish boys are asked to memorize as they are growing up. This prayer in Psalm 31, verse 5. So his final words before he gave up his spirit was a prayer that he learned as a little kid. Now, do you remember learning prayers when you were a little kid? I, I remember certain prayers that I was taught that we were to pray at bedtime, you know, that parents would come in and we'd pray these prayers. And I would bet that you and I learned the same bedtime prayer, okay? So I want to play a little game here. I want to see if y'all can complete this prayer, okay? See if we learn the same prayer. So this is all skate. We're going to all participate loud and proud, right? We ready? All right, here we go. Now I lay me down to sleep. Okay, very good. Very good. That's a great prayer. But the prayer turns really dark really fast after that statement, right? Y'all remember the end of it? If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Okay, sweetie, good night, sweet dreams. Wait, what? Right? And so this, this though, was a prayer that Jesus had learned as a, as a little kid, and it was his last statement from the cross. Psalm 31.5 reads this. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. So what is so powerful about this prayer that it would be Jesus' final words before he was buried? I think there's three main words in that prayer that he prayed that is significant for us to hold on to. And so I want to talk about Jesus' final breath and the three words that are significant in this passage. The first word that he says is the word Father. Father. He calls God Father. Every time Jesus addresses God in the Gospels, guess what he calls him? Father. Every single time. There's only one exception to that. It is whenever he is on the cross, he says something different. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, Jesus says this from the cross, and it's different than any other way he addressed God the Father. He said, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus in that moment changes from addressing God as Father to addressing him as my God. Why is this the case in which Jesus calls God something different? Well, it is in that moment that we would say that Jesus took on our sin. He became our sin on the cross as he bore our sin, paying the final price for our sin. And what happens is, is that God is so holy, God is so perfect, that this holy and righteous God cannot have fellowship with anything that is imperfect, anything that does not measure up to his standard of holiness. Well, Jesus in that moment became our sin. 
He became imperfect in that moment as he bore our sin. And there was this separation between Jesus and God. And so he refers to him not as his father, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's an extremely powerful statement. As he says that, that, listen, it is possible to have a relationship with God, but in our sin, we are separated from this holy God. And that's our state prior to our salvation. But I have good news for you. Perhaps you're here today and you would say, you know what, Pastor Chris, why do I feel so distanced from God? Why do I feel isolated from God? Well, sin does that. Sin separates us from God. And there is but one solution to that problem. And the good news is is that God loves you so much that he desires to have a personal relationship with you. And he made that possible by Jesus becoming the atoning sacrifice for your sins and for mine. And that by grace through faith in Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our lives, not only are we forgiven of our sin, you see, past, present, and future sins, but a relationship with God is restored. Listen, if you are in Christ, Scripture says that you can boldly approach the throne of grace. Think about that for a moment. I I don't know if this is your confession or not, but it certainly is mine. I'm a sinner. But yet I can boldly approach this holy God. I can boldly enter into the throne room of heaven through prayer. How is that made possible? Only by the blood of Jesus. So that by grace, through faith in him, that God no longer looks upon us as sinful, but instead sees the blood covering of Jesus and enjoys a personal relationship with you and me. This is life-changing. You don't have to be isolated from God. And perhaps the reasons why you're feeling that is that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. Scripture says, uh, Jesus says that we must be born again. And so the question then becomes, have we surrendered to Jesus? Have we been brought from death to life? Have we been born again? And so a relationship with God is possible, and Jesus communicates that it's possible because he calls him Father prior to the cross, and then becoming our sin, he says, my God, my God, and then his very last breath is Father. It's possible to move from a sinner separated from God to a sinner forgiven and in fellowship with God. You see, this is a powerful picture. Jesus calling God Father. Jesus also passes on to us, you know what? God desires to be your Father. And he teaches the disciples, when he teaches them to pray, he teaches them to call God what? Father. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 6 through 9, it says this, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to who? Your Father who is in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Listen, God wants to be your Father. He wants to be your Abba. He wants to be your Daddy. Your father. Now, I know and realize that for some of us here in the room, our earthly daddies failed us miserably. And perhaps the relationship that you have, have or had with your earthly father was not good. But can I tell you something? In God's desire to be your father, he desires to be the perfect father that your earthly father wasn't. 
He desires to be your daddy. He desires to establish a relationship where you are known and you are loved by this holy and amazing God. He desires to be your good and perfect father. Jesus referred to God as father. We should call upon God as our father. And through faith in Jesus, Scripture tells us that we actually become children of God. You gain the right to call God Father when you are a child of His. Now, this is a completely different view than what the nation of Israel had of God leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. They view God as distant Hence, the curtain separating the Holy of Holies. Hence, the reason that only one person could go and commune with God on behalf of the people. But remember, I told you that that curtain was ripped in two. Matthew's account tells us it was ripped from the top to the bottom. And what God was saying in that miracle of the cross is to say, no longer am I concealed. No longer am I distant. No longer am I unapproachable because of the blood shed upon the cross of my perfect, innocent, sacrificed son, then you may boldly approach the throne of grace. The tearing of that temple, of that curtain in the temple, was significant. And Jesus' death changed it all. We can approach God, this holy, magnificent God. The second word that stands out in Jesus' final breath is the word hands. So he calls Jesus Father, and then he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. A couple things about the hands of God. John chapter 4, verse 24, when Jesus is teaching us about what worship truly is, he says, listen, God the Father is spirit, and you must worship him in spirit and truth. What does it mean that God is spirit? Well, it means that God doesn't have a body like you and me. He doesn't have hands. He's spirit. God is not confined by time and space. He's not conf uh, confined by being in a physical body. And so he is spirit. Therefore, God does not have eyes. God does not have ears. God does not have feet. And God does not have hands. So then why would Jesus and why would the Bible in multiple places refer to the hands of God? Well, this is what is called anthropomorphism, and that is a word that means to describe God in human-like terms. Why the Bible does that is so that you and I can relate and begin to understand God. It is His way of desiring to communicate to us who we are and, and who He is that we might relate to Him that way. See, our finite minds cannot fully comprehend the totality of who God is, right? I mean, if, if we were to try to be exposed to God, our human brains would explode because we don't have a category for how big God is. He's indescribable. And so the Bible uses anthropomorphism in order to describe and give a human-like description to God so that we can understand Him and relate to Him. Now, God doesn't have eyes, yet you need to know he sees and knows you. God doesn't have ears, but you need to know he hears your every prayer. God doesn't have arms, but yet he still holds us within his love. God doesn't have hands, but yet he knit you together in your mother's womb. This is a concept of God that is so 
earth-shattering to us and difficult for us to understand. But this picture gives us a picture of who this God is. So Jesus commits his spirit into God's hands. Now what's specific about the hands of God is the strength that the Bible teaches about the hand of God. Again, anthropomorphism. But consider the strength that is in the very palm of God's hand. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29 says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, God, who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. In other words, your salvation, my salvation, is secure in just the palm of God's hand. This is the strength of God. Then again in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, the author writes, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God provides for you and for me His strength and his hand to carry us in the moments when things are so overwhelming that you can't even move. You have access to the strength of God in those moments. Think about this statement for just a moment. This is a conversation between the Trinity, God the Son. Jesus is not like God. He's not a God. He is God in the flesh. Having a conversation with God Almighty, God the Father, And he says, into God the Father, your hands, do I commit my spirit, the Son of God committing his life into the hands of God. Listen, do you think that if God can contain within his very hand the very life of his Son, that he doesn't have you too? He's got you in the palm of his hand. And there's a sense of peace and there's a sense of strength that is made available to us in understanding this idea of the hands of God, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're experiencing in this very moment, I want you to know something very clear from the mouth of Jesus' final words. God's got this. He's got it. He's with you. He's providing your strength. He's upholding you. When you're too weak to stand, you have the very strength of God's hands. Isn't that good? Let's keep going. The third word of significance in Jesus' final breath is the word commit. Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. That word commit means to completely rest upon. I'm committed. I'm all in. And Jesus is saying, into your hands, Father, I am all in. I completely trust you. There's no fear. There's no worry, there's no doubt, there's just resting in the hands of the Father, committing His Spirit. And all throughout the Bible, we see evidence of God being trustworthy, being someone who we can rest in. If God speaks it, it will come true, and it will be true. Let me give you just a couple of examples. God told Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. And what happened? He made him into that great nation of which the Savior of the world came. It's God honoring his word. God told Moses, you go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And I'm going to lead my people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. And that's exactly what happened. 
the scriptures, every promise, every word, every claim could be trusted by God completely so that you and I could commit our lives to him. And the final breath of Jesus was not your typical final breath. Two ways his last words proved to be different than any other final word. In verse 47 of Luke 23, it says, Now when the centurion that was there attending his crucifixion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Now Matthew's account tells us that not only the centurion, but the guards that were there also surrendered their life to Jesus, saying, Surely this is the Son of God. They understood that these final breath of this man was different. I mean, you've got to understand that, right? These were two men that were experts in the Roman art of crucifixion. How many final words had they heard? How many final breaths had they witnessed? Countless. But yet Jesus' last words, they were different. So much so that it led them to himself. And so it's different in that way. But second way that this, this is different, these last words are different, is that this isn't the last words of Jesus. See, Jesus would breathe again. And he would speak again. And he would rise to where he currently resides, alive, seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's another sermon in this series, so I'll leave it there for now. But just as Jesus predicted with the disciples that he would die and then on the third day he would rise, it came to pass. My point is that when God speaks, it can be trustworthy. And the result of the trustworthiness of God and the times that he's proven himself true time and time again means that you and I, we can commit our lives to him. We can fully trust in him. Three significant words in Jesus' last breath. Father. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Now, before we end our time today, I want to look at the statement Jesus said just before he said that. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, and we'll go through verse 30. Second to last words that Jesus spoke. It says, verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst... That's another saying from the cross. And then verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and then he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up his spirit. It is finished. Another statement from the cross with great purpose. The word it, it, translated as it is finished is one word in the original language, tetelestai, or tetelestai, depending on if you're from the north. Tetelestai, it is finished. It was a common word used in Jesus' day. It meant something to be complete, done. In fact, a servant, whenever he would complete the task given to him by his master, would come to the master and say, die, it's finished, it's completed. 
An artist, when he makes his last stroke of the brush, would step back from his work of art and say, Tatilistai, it's complete, it's finished. A vendor, when engaged in negotiations on a price for a product that they are selling, when they would come to an agreement on the settlement of that price, they would say, Tatilistai, it's finished, it's done. And when Jesus said tetelestai from the cross, when he said it was finished, what he is saying is he's saying the debt has been paid. It's done. You and I, in our sin, owe a debt that there is no way we could ever repay. But the good news is that Jesus paid it for us by taking our place upon the cross and through his blood shed at Calvary, we are forgiven and the debt that we owe is canceled. Jesus said it is finished. It's done. The mission by which he had been sent was completed. Done. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 13 through 14 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses, that is in your sin, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having what? Forgiven us all, not some, all our trespasses. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The debt of sin has been canceled on our behalf. Praise God. But in addition to Jesus' final breath saying it is finished means that he has also given us victory. Jesus did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. There was so much more to come for Jesus. And this is not a cry of defeat This term, and saying it in this very moment, was a shout of victory. It's finished. I'm going to the grave. I'm going to be raised, but it ain't the end. I've still got work to do. And Jesus rose from the grave. And beloved, here's the power of that event. That event, if we have placed our faith and trust in him, secures for us just as Jesus conquered sin, death, and the grave, you and I, beloved, on the backs of Jesus will conquer sin, death, and the grave and live eternally with God the Father. That's good news. You're listening to Trinity Baptist Church's Hope for the Broken podcast. If you would like to learn more about this ministry, visit us online at trinitytx.org. That's trinitytx.org. Here's Pastor Chris to wrap up our time together. Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad that you found this podcast. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. It is our goal at Trinity to lead everyone into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life, we would love to connect with you. Please feel free to give us a call at 903-572-1959 or email us at info at trinitytx.org. If you are ever in the East Texas area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 a.m. Thanks so much for listening today. God bless you. We pray that you have experienced hope today. If you would like to support the ministries of Trinity Baptist Church with a financial gift, you can do so by giving online. Simply log on to trinitytx.org and click the Give tab. Be sure to join us next week as we look into God's Word on Hope for the Broken.